0: We know of new methods of attack.
1: The The fifth column.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades, commies, compañeros, how you doing? It is uh, the middle of August. We have had a kind of relaxing month, which Matt has disappeared upstate. I went with my lovely daughter to... Italy um, and have been doing other things. And Camille is moving to California. He promises that he'll be coming back east once a month, I guess, to record. Um, (laughs) I don't believe him. Because uh, I don't know, man. I was just looking at the New York Post and the main headline uh, it's a bit different on the, on the website. They they don't go as, as hard on the uh, cool and funny headlines. But there was just a video of a car driving in San Francisco smashing the windows of cars all in a row, smashing them and just doing smash and grabs the mi- middle of the day. So that's what he's going back to. I had some Irish guests here, um, people from, lovely people uh, from Ireland who came out to East Egg um, along with my ex frau it is that kind of, we we, we get along. That's We all just hang around. <laughs> and The Irish people, um, we mentioned I think on the Members Only podcast, said something that was pretty funny. This is absolutely true. Um, they were talking to me about how they were being polite somewhere in Midtown and the guy said he held the door. This is the politeness. He opens the door for somebody as he's trying to go into a shop. I don't even remember what shop it was. But the man was running out uh, with bags of stolen goods. Um, I said, oh, wow. And they were like shocked by this. I said, you this is a thing in America now. And he had no idea what I was talking about. He wasn't telling me this to say, oh, I saw one of the things that happened, you know, those videos on TikTok and on um, Instagram and on Twitter where some moron, uh, I did not even know if they're morons, actually. They're probably pretty smart because nothing happens to them. And they go in and they steal everything. And <laughs> their first day in New York, literally their first day in New York, um, holding the door for a guy that was cleaning out a store. Um, <laughs> I felt really bad for them. So we'll be doing another episode soon. I mean, I need to. I need to. I can't. I mean, I don't do this just for you. This is therapy for me um, because <laughs> I am going... To a dinner party on Saturday with some uh, really great and interesting people, I think one of whom has been a guest on uh, the podcast and I know that the conversation will at some point turn to jew face <laughs> sorry but that's what, <laughs> that's what it that's what it says jew face that's what it says in my notes here, and that is that is. Uh, another fake story. I love fake stories. I mean, the fake news, by the way, which became this watchword for news stories that were deliberately misleading or not true um, in the sense that, you know, sort of political sense, Donald Trump is saying this. Hillary Clinton, of course, uh, said this quite a bit, and Donald Trump kind of stole it from her. But fake news, in my mind, uh, is are these stories that aren't real in a totally different way, that, you know, people online are complaining... And it's some bored kid who works at the Daily Mail, the the New York Post, uh, whatever it might be. And they find somebody on their Instagram feed who's like, you know what? I cannot believe that Bradley Cooper, a non-Jew, is playing Leonard Bernstein. It's Bernstein? What did I say? Bernstein or Bernstein? Leonard Bernstein. It's Stein. It's got to be Stein. I'm, I'm literally looking this up right now. I've been saying this for years and I just had a crisis of confidence in my saying this right. Well, it's S-T-E-I-N. So it is Stein. Um, he's playing Leonard Bernstein. He's not Jewish. And Leonard Bernstein, by the way, just do a Google image search, had a bit of a schnoz on him. I, you know, I, there are stereotypes. I get it. But I'm just talking about Leonard Bernstein. Had a bit of a schnoz on him. So Bradley Cooper is playing him and the trailer for this film uh, has come out. looks pretty good, actually. I'm excited to to watch it. I hope that there will be a scene of the Black Panthers coming to his Upper East Side maisonette, which turned into uh, the great Radical Chic essay by Tom Wolfe. But they, uh, there's a debate now. And again, this is the fake news part. There is no debate. The b- debate's not happening. Somebody said something on Twitter is not a debate. That it, There are limitless numbers of idiotic people in this world, willing to say idiotic things, and a few other people retweet them, etc. And um, there was there was a conversation amongst a few people, which of course became a news story, in which someone said, you know, they shouldn't put prosthetics on people like that if that prosthetic might be part of a stereotype used by anti Semites. And um, also, those characters are for us; they're not for you, Bradley Cooper, because there's a <laughs> Is there a problem with representation. in you know, I can't even I can't finish it. I can't, I can't go any further on this because then I'll get in trouble. But um, but uh, I think by the way at the dinner party I'm going to I, I will be the one of the uh, few Gentiles. So it should be a fun, interesting discussion. They're all good friends of mine. and They're all very fu- very funny and very smart. So we shall see. But let's get back to what we're doing here because I mean I'm I'm basically just recording an episode on my own. I wanted uh, to talk about that. I'm going to talk about the Hawaii uh, stuff, uh, the coverage of that, maybe when we come back into a real episode, because nobody wants to hear me just talk endlessly about that. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I know you do. Don't You don't have to text me. I know you do. But instead, I am going to just open this Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. We have a two-part episode coming in the next two days. This is the first part. So, Camille and I, uh, Matt was not invited because he sucks, uh, went down to Philly uh, to speak at a student conference at uh, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, it used to be, and now it's the Foundation for Individual Rights and Everything. I don't know. What is, what is the final, what is the final now. Oh, my God. I can't believe this. They brought us down. I love them so much, and I can't remember... I could cut this, but I'm actually just uh, in expression. That, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, that's what they are now because, you know, there are other people like the ACLU who have decided that their remit is no longer uh, free expression. It's, uh, I don't know, something else. Uh, attacking Jesse Single, I guess. I don't know what they do. But uh, So we went down to this student conference, um, you know, the night before we saw Oppenheimer, the opening night. We've talked about that on the pod. And uh, the first night, we um, spoke uh, to the students who were very nervous and kind of reticent. The first night, they were kind of they were young people. Some of them were, I think, uh, I talked to one person who was actually in high school getting ready to go to college and uh, already had good ideas, apparently, about free speech. But they, you know, were sitting there very timidly, and we were up on stage, and they were kind of, um, um, you know, getting into it. Not the most reactive, but they were getting into it. And so that's the second night, Use Your Illusion, Volume 2, in which they get into it in a great way. And they're really, really fantastic. And that is about the university and students uh, because they ask questions and we talk about free speech. This episode, which was the Friday night episode, or the Friday night recording, was with our friend, um, fellow traveler, uh, member of the Communist Party of uh, San Francisco. Francisco. I'm kidding. Uh, Laura Bazelon who we absolutely love, one of my favorite people. And we probably disagree on a lot, but Laura's really fun. And she's um, old school. She's from a different time. And that time was when, you know, we used to hang out with people that we totally disagreed with because we liked them. And we thought they were honest brokers. That is Laura Bazelon, Mutual Appreciation Society, I hope, I think. And at the tail end of this, you get uh, on, hops up on stage um, like, a, like a young man at a Morrissey concert, hops up on stage. It is Greg Lukianoff, the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind and uh, the president, Grand Puba, Uh, Generalissimo of FIRE. So he gets up and talks to us about the situation on Speech on Campus. But, you know, the next episode, so stay tuned for this, the next episode, which we'll release in maybe the next day, in a couple of days, uh, is the talk that we give to the students, which was really, really great, really, really fun. The students get involved. They tell us stories. You're going to hear those stories. Uh, We respond to them and kind of give people some advice and uh, and yeah, so it was really, really fun. We thank the people of FIRE. They're our friends. We greatly appreciate the work that they do on behalf of people of all political backgrounds and ideologies, um, doing a great job. Um, somebody has to do it because the situation for speech on campus, and I know it's broader than that now for FIRE, but as you will hear Greg Lukianoff say that um, it is the worst he's seen um, ever, actually. He says ever. So listen to this. Um, a little bit of back and forth with us and Laura Kipnis on uh, some hip-hop case. I don't know. Camille brings these things up. And then Free Speech and then a bunch of stuff in between. But uh, hang on because the second episode, we don't want to overwhelm you, will be coming in a few days or maybe tomorrow or whatever. And that one is, uh, is I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed it. But you'll enjoy this one, and uh, we'll see you with a regular episode soon. We, we, we know of new methods. Uh, of since we're tank. talking
3: about the courts already, I want to talk about something else that I've been following in the news, which does have a fire connection, at least somewhat. Um, I gave the, I at least was the MC at the Fire Gala recently, um, but the keynote speaker there was Killer Mike Render. And uh, Mike Run the Jewels is a phenomenal artist and he is also a remarkable orator. I mean, he gave this Yeah, if you guys amazing, haven't listened to the speech or yeah, watched this speech, barn it is burner a, of barn a speech.
2: Bur- it is unbelievable.
3: And one it's of the things, one of the things that Mike mentioned during his speech um, were some issues with lyrics from songs being used in criminal cases. And it just so happens at the moment that there are two rather high profile criminal cases that are winding their way through the courts, one involving a rapper named YNW Melly in Florida, the other involving Young Thug out of Atlanta, and Mike is also from Atlanta. I know he's friendly with Thug, and I've seen him post affirmative things about Thug, and I'm a big fan of Thugs. Like Over the last 10 years, I think Thug is probably one of the best rappers around, but both of these are murder cases, and one, Thug's case is actually a Rico case, there's a whole lot of interesting thorny issues there. Um, But also in both cases, rap lyrics have featured prominently in the cases and are frequently referred to. In one case, you have a video of YNW Melly rapping lyrics that make it sound as though he is confessing to a murder, bragging about getting away with it. And it is only when the defense suggests that this is actually a song by Kevin Gates that the jury is essentially being informed that this isn't an admission of anything necessarily. It seems like it could just be someone singing along to a song. So, Laura, I mean, I know this is something you pay attention to, both criminal trials that are very prominent in the news cycle, but also this specific issue of lyrics being used in prosecution.
1: It is incredibly scary to me, these two stories, and I feel like people so quickly say, oh, well, look at the other evidence against these two people. It's overwhelming. They're going to get convicted. That's really, first of all, the jury hasn't said that, and that's your opinion. And second of all, you should really use lawfully admissible evidence against them. And it is true, I guess, that in Georgia and Florida, you can take somebody's art, literally their words, their creative product, and read it to a jury and call it their confession, or worse, someone else's words that you sang or rapped to, and call it a confession. And you I cannot just,
2: do that in California. You
1: cannot. Yeah. In California, we—California, of course, the land of many, many amazing things, which is why you're moving back. And I can't wait for us to be <laughs> I had friends. No idea what on The
2: land of many, many what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, it's—I I think it is the most messed up thing, and. I mean, we can get into this, but it's hard not to think that there's a racial component to this. And I think people have made this point, but like over and over again, it's these cases where you have people who are, it's rap lyrics. And a big part of the culture is basically putting yourself out there as someone who is down to do a bunch of things, but that's arguably part of your art. And where those two mix, like your real life and your art, I feel like if you have the actual evidence that you went on and did what you said, then go find it and introduce it. And if not... Maybe don't recite somebody's actual song and tell the jury that that's what they meant. So I feel strongly about it.
3: I mean, Moynihan, one of the songs uh, Melly is most famous for is a song called "Murder on My Mind," oh, um, that's which lovely. Yeah. you know. When, when you're yeah. involved in a situation... It's just on
2: his mind, though. And two of yeah, your he's friends... do it. you it. just thinking about <laughs> it. Mean, <he's> As
3: like, <laughs> you do, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a hairy situation. He's riding up down a street in Florida late at night, coming from the recording studio, and two of his friends wind up horrifically murdered in what was purported to be a drive-by shooting, but various bits of evidence suggest something else was going yeah. on. It, why... I mean, is it completely irrational for a jury... To, or for a prosecution to say, hey, this guy writes a lot of songs about murdering people, and also people end up dead when he's around. Seems like this is probably relevant for us to talk about.
2: Sure. I mean, the other case, of course... And, and, and would the, you not talk about that if the guy was white? I'm. I mean, I, to Laura's <laughs> point. <laughs> I'd talk about it regardless. <laughs> but... You know, it is. Uh, keep in mind, the other person you're talking about is going into trial, and his name is Thug, Young Thug. Yes. Not a great. Yeah, you call it Thug. He's it's a, a young, short, yeah, thug. Yeah, it's a young yeah, thug. Aspiring. That might poison the jury a little <laughs> bit too. Now, one of the things we talked about this on a recent episode of the podcast, and uh, you know, younger crowd, you might not remember a guy named Milan Kundera, who was a great Czech dissident writer in the 1970s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, And he wrote a book, a very famous book, called The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is a tremendous book, Mm. and an even better film, actually. And um, in, in the process of talking about this, uh, Matt Welch, who's our co-host, who is not here for reasons that we don't quite understand, but he's not here, and he was talking about how much you know Kundera was influencing him when he was in, in Prague, I and that was very eloquent about. He
1: Kundera, was. He yeah. was
2: went a little too long, though, didn't you? I, I don't know. I <laughs> thought when I was editing it, I was like, "This is a little much." <laughs> I don't know why he's talking <laughs> so much, but I I said, "Oh yeah, well, you know, we're going to talk about that tonight." So I went to the New York Times and read their obit. Um, An old friend of mine, by the way, did an incredible documentary about the obit page, um, which is very good. They prepare these in advance, and they're quite detailed, and they're very, very good at it. But I noticed something, and this is relevant to this, um, a discussion about Milan Kundera's misogyny, his sexism, in his writing. And they started talking about characters, and I said, no, 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 God, God, God. It's very possible that Milan Kundera is a sexist. It's very possible that he's a misogynist. It's very possible that he has bad views on lots of things, but please never ascribe the views of somebody's character to the writer. I see this all the time. When books get banned, when books are shouted down in universities and places like this, oh, there's characters that say bad things, and those come upon the writer themselves. The writer's not inhabiting a character, All those characters are the writer. No, that's not how writing works. And that's not how fiction works. Rappers, it's kind of the same thing, right? The number of rappers who have committed murders versus the number of people who have rapped about committing murders is not, you know, it's probably about 30,000 to one. So I understand why it would be introduced. Makes perfect sense to me. Uh, You know, you have to apply your legal judgment to this. But as far as just common sense, Unless you're being very specific, oh, you remember when I murdered that guy, named, on this day, named, sure, okay. But otherwise, the kind of fantasy of being a gangster is unfortunately when, why some of these people do get into trouble, because they take the fantasy too far. But if you insist upon saying, well, that is reality, you have to apply that across the board, and it's always a problem.
1: I feel like what is not, that is a perfect parallel, I think, right? I mean, what is the difference between Milan Kundera being called a misogynist because people didn't like his female characters and didn't think that they were fully developed or whatever critique was in the obituary, I trust you, I didn't read it, and this case? Like, do you see a difference?
3: Um, well, one involves murder, so yeah, in that respect, <laughs> I see a difference. Uh, no, I don't, I don't see a material difference, but it, it does seem very relevant I mean, the particular facts of the case like, have to be considered. And as much as I like Thugger, like, it, th- things do not look good for him. There's a lot of compelling evidence. And the fact is that you are on trial. It's a RICO case. And the RICO prosecutions, There are a litany of other civil liberties issues that we might want to bring up as well. But you rap regularly about gang life and gang-related activities. And in some instances, some of the lyrics do seem to have some relationship to people who are involved in the case
1: but do you not think Camille that if the facts are as compelling as you say Mm -hmm. and that there's all kinds of evidence there's witnesses there's recordings there's sightings there's documentary evidence if you have all of that then what the hell are you doing reaching for somebody's art and piling on and this is the part that I never understand about prosecutors it's like you have them already. You have them. And now you're going to step over and do this extra radical thing. Because why? I guess I just don't understand that. I feel like if your case is good, then you don't need to reach over into somebody's First Amendment rights and put that into your criminal case. And to me, it speaks of this, like, poverty of either it's a poverty of evidence or it's a deep prosecutorial insecurity and what i see all the time which is just this massive overreach right like why are you using a RICO statute maybe we could talk about that for a second do you really need to use the racketeering influence corrupt organizations act to go after this guy like you need to use that kind of a hammer i just think maybe just file a simple felony murder charge and see where that gets you and just use normal evidence.
3: I mean, part of the motivation, though, for the district attorney in this case might be that these are very high profile people. It's a high profile case. This is uh, you're part of the justice system, but you're also kind of a political figure. I mean, the same district attorney in Georgia is very soon might be prosecuting a former president of the United States for um, election related matters so you know i'm not saying that that is necessarily a politically motivated um prosecution but it is certainly politically charged and in this particular case Fugga is a big deal in atlanta and it's interesting you laura sent a quote earlier from um d.a willis who said um i have some legal advice don't confess to crimes on rap lyrics if you do not want them used or at least to get out um, uh, or at least to get out of my country. I don't know what that yeah, last yeah, bit yeah, of it sorry, means. Yeah. She was but like, or at least
1: get out of my country. Essentially, my county. Yeah. Yeah. County.
3: Yeah, yeah, get out yeah, of yeah. my co- county. Uh, one day I'll learn to read, it's fine. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, this is an interesting perspective from the DA.
1: When you read those words, did you feel a chill? I just, that makes yeah. me cold inside. Yeah.
3: Well, I don't rap about murdering people generally, so it's not not a huge concern for me, but I am a civil libertarian. But I do if care. what you
1: did, and your counter to me was just, well, this guy's a really big deal, so they've got to bring in the big guns, but that's a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. We're supposed to treat everybody the same. Sure. I mean, usually I'm used to my clients who have no money being treated horribly, but I'm not a fan of treating wealthy, famous rappers horribly so that because they're a bigger deal and because... Bonnie Willis has a political platform and she needs to make sure that she's covered this part of her base before she files maybe a rego case against Donald Trump. Let's
2: talk about that and equal protection and making examples of people, right? It's a good example of that recently. Now on this January 6th, we recorded a podcast that night. You guys didn't listen to it because you were probably... Too young at the time, I guess, <laughs> or you obviously don't have great taste. You should be listening to it, <laughs> but they—you listen to it. That man, give that man a T-shirt. Do we have a T-shirt or something yeah, for him? Yeah, we'll, we'll take care of um, him. And that evening, I said, as this was unfolding, and I remember this very clearly, said, "Throw them all in prison. Every yes, single, did. every single person that crossed the threshold, throw them in prison. This is a disgrace. I stand by that position." But, let me just throw this out there, and this is a case made, not necessarily by me, but a lot of people make this case, and I think there's something to it. When you have people who don't have records, sort of, you know, basically, some of them nonviolent offenses, some of them violent, attacking police and the rest of it, crossing into, you know, parading, which is my favorite one, they get, you know, and are going into somebody's office, propping your feet up on the desk, and they get these very long sentences. Now. Laura Baslin and I had a conversation this morning about people who do not like the carceral state until they do, until it's something that you don't like. And then you say, throw the fucking book at them, get them out of here, they're bad people. Um, And I gave you an example of somebody I interviewed here who was sexually harassed by a boss and they said he should never work again, never work again. And I said, you know, a little, we could be reformed at some point. No, 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 no. Bad guy, never again. Later in the conversation, we were talking about um, somebody who committed a murder, spent 10 years in prison. And I said, would you hire that person? She didn't remember that we had just had a conversation about the other thing. And I said, yeah, of course, we have to rehabilitate people. And that was the thing we were talking about this morning. Yes. People have this idea that Putting people in prison is bad until it isn't, and it's mm-hmm. the thing that I hate. So in the January 6th thing, let's just entertain the idea from you know, people in the Trump universe who say, well, equal protection under the law, but they're very clearly trying to make an example of everyone because this is democracy at stake, this is a sacred space that they invaded, the law should you know come down a little harder on them. What do you make of that?
1: I feel like it's such a seductive argument, right? Because it reaches into all of your, Greg was talking about this, your self righteous impulses and your sense of moral clarity. Because I watched January 6th with my kids. I think we were home because of the pandemic. It was like a sporting event. (laughs) It was was an unfolding, slow motion democracy car accident. And I was full of shame. I couldn't believe my kids were watching this. It was embarrassing. And I have the same feeling as you do. I felt like a real sense of just rage and wanting all of those people to go to prison for a really long time. And there's other people I feel that way about too. And I think the problem is you have to not give in, I think, to that vindictive impulse. You can feel it, you can acknowledge it, and then say, okay, but I have this principle, which is that I don't believe that the solution (laughs) is to lock up the grandpa who got excited for his Facebook group and showed up with his Trump flag and like crept up the steps, needs to do five years. I just don't... That's, if I don't believe that my client should be doing five years, I don't really think that, you know what I mean? It should be, Laura, do you want to way.
2: make America great again? Is that <laughs> what you're trying to tell us? I want to make America I got you, communist finally. for the first time. Is that an
1: acronym? Is that like an-
2: I got you in to admit that you're a Trump person. But there's Secretly, a, I love there's a speech thing here, too, that there's overlaps quite nicely. And... I always have a hard time when people say, well, where are you going this weekend? And I say, I'm doing a FIRE thing, and then I have to give them the acronym. And on that last letter, I always hang up, and I'm like, what the hell is it now? Because well, it, it used to be education, right? There were people, but there was another group that did the whole thing outside of education, who abrogated their responsibilities and decided they were not gonna do that anymore, and then into the breach steps Greg Lukianoff. The thing about the ACLU, And the reason that I used to get, there was a bumper sticker. I saw this when I was a kid. Do you have bumper stickers anymore? There was a bumper sticker, there was ACLU. There was a guy who had the NRA stickers, and it said, Association of Crying Liberal Underachievers. (laughs) How the ACLU was viewed by a lot of people. But the thing about the January 6th people, in the totally idiotic views that most of these people have, conspiratorial views and the rest of it, um, believing the election was stolen with quite literally zero evidence, um, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. We can argue about their stupid ideas. You get in front of a court of law, does that matter? We've had, we had somebody on talking about, this, I can't remember who it was, um, but that's the thing that the ACLU used to do so well. Does anyone know, does anyone, I mean you've probably seen the Ira Glasser documentary made by the people at fire which is absolutely phenomenal, um, an absolute hero, and had been overlooked by a lot of people until that documentary. Anybody here, have, you guys know what Skokie is? Anyone? Not enough, but I want more. The Skokie case, it is a very simple case. Skokie was a very simple version of it. In, outside of Chicago, right, in Illinois, um, a place populated by many, many Holocaust survivors. Um, and some Nazis decided that in their infinite Nazi wisdom, they wanted to march through Skokie and provoke these people. No, no, you can't do that. Well, the ACLU stepped in and said, they have the shittiest ideas you can possibly imagine. The guy who tried to run that, by the way, that uh, Frank Collin was his name, um, it, it was arrested on pedophilia charges later. Why is it always the case with Nazis? They're always getting arrested for pedophilia charges. It's true. <laughs> and one the other day, it's happened again. Um, total nut, and I think he might have been Jewish too that it came out later, this happens often too. Total nut, but they defended his right because his stupid, idiotic, knuckle-dragging ideas weren't the point. When the ACLU decided recently to back away from after the, the tragedy in Charlottesville, and I know, just talk to somebody here, and they know who they are about this, um, there are people within that organization who said, well, no, that's not what we do anymore. We don't protect those people. No, we have to protect those people. We have to protect the bad ideas, and we have to defend people in a court of law regardless of their ideas, and the law should apply equally to all of them. I think it's a pretty basic concept, but f- unfortunately, I don't think that's a common view anymore.
3: Yeah. Well, I want to try to do several things at once. First, I'm going to ask Greg to come back up and join us um, and and shift the conversation a little bit beyond the the courtroom um, to other contexts where there are sometimes hearings and investigations and scandalous charges being leveled. And perhaps something less than due process being applied. Now, Laura, I I know that you have been involved in some situations like this. And Greg, I know specifically back in the days when fire had an E at the end for education, there were a lot of circumstances like this as well, where on a college campus, there might be some sort of sexual misconduct issue. And there are real questions about whether or not people are actually getting uh, a fair hearing, and what, while these are not criminal prosecutions, yeah. the consequences can be enormous for a young person to find themselves essentially excommunicated from their from their college um, in, from their from their college or university, from the community itself. Their academic future could be in jeopardy. This is a huge, huge deal, um, and not to mention the fact that their be almost certainly be some sort of media coverage of things if it's sufficiently sensational. So I wonder, Lara, if you could talk a little bit about the, the situation that people face in a circumstance like that, and you know, how you might uh, be involved in that kind of situation. And similarly, Greg, I, I'd invite you to add a little bit more color to those situations, where things stand in general. Um, with the frequency with which we see things like that and what can be done to ensure that people are uh, receiving justice and that their rights are being protected.
1: Okay. I mean, I think I've been thinking about this a lot because we were talking about Michael's example seems really salient to me, which is sometimes, you know, I I live in San Francisco. It's very left, very progressive. I don't know that there's actually a Republican to be found or if there is they're hiding and you can't actually locate them. So you go to these, you know, events, these parties and people ask, what do you do? And so I've tried out these different answers as an experiment. I say I'm a law professor. They say, what kind? I say I teach students how to be lawyers. How do you do that? I run this clinic. What do you do? And the clinic does all kinds of things. So I'll say at one party, well, actually, we represent people who've been wrongfully convicted and we try to get them out of prison. And as you two just lavished praise on me, people are like, that's amazing. Can I give you some money? Tell me a story about that. Um, And I'm like, yes, give me all of your money. And then I go buy my daughter another outfit at Sheen, which is getting sued under Rico. Anyway, I go to the next cocktail party, and they same conversation, they asked me what I do, and I say, actually, what we do is we represent people who have been convicted of very, very serious, horrific murders. Mm-hmm. They were young. They were 16. They were 17. They were convicted, and they did it, and it was horrific, and they've been incarcerated for 25 years, and they've done all this programming, and they are completely rehabilitated. They bear no resemblance to the teenage person that they were, and we try to get them out through youthful offender parole hearings. And again, I mean, they're even more excited in San Francisco about the murderers. (laughs) They're like, that's incredible. Of course everybody deserves a second chance, and on and on and on, and then more money and more clothes for for Ella. And then I go to the party and I say, they ask me what I do, and I say, well, actually, you know, we we represent students in in Title IX matters. And they say, oh, to get more money for girls in sports? And I say, no. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's, it's a disciplinary hearing involving sexual assault allegations. And they're like, that is fantastic that you're standing up for, for women and girls. It's about time someone spoke up for survivors. And I say, no, we represent the people who've been accused. Just accused. It's just an allegation. And it's like... I farted in the car. Like, conversation is over. We're done. They back away. It's like I'm radioactive. And I guess I feel like that kind of says it all Mm -hmm. about where we are in this current moment and why I think this work is so terribly important. Because if you spend any time in the guts of any single one of these cases, I mean, literally, you can almost pick anyone. it is a radicalizing experience. You're there with someone who's 19, who's 20, who's very inexperienced, who doesn't have any money, who's new to college, who you know got into a very murky situation, and all of a sudden, all these consequences that Camille is talking about come to bear. And as many times as I've seen my clients, in my opinion, get railroaded in criminal court, at least there were certain kinds of rules that yeah, everybody had to follow. Yeah. And in this situation, I have a case right now. They won't give me the complaint. We're going to a hearing on Tuesday. I don't have the complaint. They won't wow. turn it over. Yeah. You know, who's coming to this hearing? We'll see. There's 27 of them. Let's, you know, we'll, we'll see who comes on Tuesday. I mean, you would never actually have a process like this if somebody could potentially go to prison. In fact, Michael was just on a jury in a misdemeanor case and there was yes. plenty of process <laughs> until they let Michael on. And of course he convicted so he could go home on a Friday. But there were that's, all these that's rules not, that's not
2: totally
3: true. that people were supposed <laughs> to be following,
1: and that's not happening. And I think <laughs> that, like, for me, in a weird way, even though it's so consequential that Leon is home and I'm so grateful, and, but in a way, this seems so consequential because having us there for free or not yeah. having us is literally the difference between someone being able to have an education or not, someone you know doing something really terrible to themselves or not because a lot of people become suicidal. I mean, it's just, yeah. an un- most people will tell you, I would rather be convicted of a robbery than be found responsible for a Title IX allegation because you can rehabilitate yourself and get into school and no one will ever take you yeah. for Title IX. And, yeah. and that to me is just absolutely wild.
2: Um, you said something in your sort of introductory remarks that kind of stopped me in my tracks, and I feel like I hear this often, you said it's the worst climate for speech that yeah. you've ever seen yeah
0: yeah no uh, uh, first of all thanks so much for having me um the uh, it's it's so great to be i'm a big fan of the fifth column um yeah no like i feel like i'm kind of shouting into the void about this um because i've been doing this for 22 years and when i started in 2001 I was kind of shocked at how bad it already was for free speech, but it was the administrators who were carrying on like the speech codes are good. There were actually more speech codes, even though the speech codes were defeated yeah. roundly in the 1990s, when we actually looked into it, about 79% of schools had what we call red light speech codes. So like a lot of this stuff, the reason why it got so bad, and this is why, why I wrote a piece in reason about it, it was way too long. Um, It was essentially, there was this sort of paroxysm of illiberalism on campus just ten years after the Supreme Court basically said free speech is dominant on campus, it's incredibly powerful, you can even do horrible cartoons that offend everybody. Um, within ten years of that, there was this push to have speech codes. Um, it took over the it took over the nation. Wisconsin passed them, Stanford passed them, um, schools all over the country passed speech codes in the name of, you know, banning sexism and, and racism. And interestingly, even though there's all this debate about critical race theory, it really was Richard Delgado, Mary Matsuda, like the founders of critical race theory. So it, they, they end up being really important to the narrative. So this happened, it had this great moral force that we have to now be against free speech if we think it's offensive uh, to, to, to vulnerable people. Then, of course, it led to the censorship of even a lot of vulnerable people at the same yeah. time, because that's the way speech goes work. Um, it was laughed at in the, in the media, it was defeated in a court of law, and everybody went, Phew. thank goodness that's over. And when I started in 2001, nobody was paying attention to this stuff anymore. And it was insane even back then how easy it was to get in trouble for, for what you say. But something like a switch got turned around 2014. Um, I don't know exactly why. Coddling of the American Mind, my book with John Haidt, is all like is a detective story trying to figure like, out what the hell happened right around 2014. And now I'm dealing with the, the number of firings that I've, I can't find a parallel to it in the modern age of, uh, of, of constitutional free speech on, on campus, which basically started in 1973 or 1967, depending on which case you take. Um, so to give you perspective, uh, when I started, all the cases were about 9 11. And and I, my first time on TV was defending Samuel Al against Daniel yes, Pipes, a, yes, a guy who was accused yes. of terrorism. And then yes. after he was you know kicked out of uh, uh, kicked out of the country, he actually yeah. went he, to it. You know, he was, a, was a, deported.
2: It was in Central Florida or some Florida a, university, university yeah. Central Florida. And yeah. then he
0: actually you know teamed yeah. up with the Muslim Brotherhood. Like he did really have connections, but they tried to fire him just for his speech. And that was my you know my first time. On it TV. was after a
2: Bill O'Reilly appearance. Yes, oh. it
0: was really bad. Um, yeah. and there was a shocking number of professors fired. Five. That's really bad, guys. Like, like Five professors being fired is actually a, a kind of shocking number. I'm now dealing with when we're approaching about 200 professors fired, about 30% of them come from the right, about 60% of them come from the left, and, and there's a big middle, and nobody seems to give a shit. Yeah. I
1: think, though, it is really important, talking about the professors getting fired, to make sure that the right gets its due here, and I know you agree with me, Camille, because... I think the worst, worst offender is is DeSantis and what's happening in Florida with New College and how Christopher Rufo came down and took that school over and basically is firing people for their ideas. So this is absolutely an equal opportunity sport. And as usual with the right, they tend to be R- Rufo hates guts, much more way. impactful. Maybe they're 30%, but their impact, okay. their impact is huge because... You know, the left they like to play chess, and the right they like to come in and kick all of your teeth in, and that's what Christopher Ruffo is doing. And it's it's not just him; it's like a whole platform—the quote anti-woke platform and banning books. It's it's a thing that I think is across the spectrum. Yeah.
0: The the good news, so they passed the Stop Woke Act. In Florida, and I was like, "Holy shit!" And we tried to stop them. We did, we did our best to try before it actually got passed, and they passed something. I'm like, "Guys, this is the most unconstitutional law I've seen regarding academic freedom. It's going to be laughed out of court." So we sued. The ACLU sued, and 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 we and, and we beat it. It, w- it was obvious. And you know, we're taking flack for the fact that kind of like. I believe actually that there should be serious reform in higher ed. I think there are lots of things. I think it should be way less bureaucratized. I think it should be cheaper. I think it should be, I honestly, I think it should be more equitable. I think there should be more, I think there should be more poor kids go- going to some of these fancy schools. I have lots of ideas on way to make higher education better, but try- passing unconstitutional laws is idiotic. Um, so the, uh, and so what's going on in Florida, the good news there is at least when they overstep, it's easy to actually sue and defeat them.
3: Well. I wanted to talk a little bit about the education system and the the excesses from the right and the left with respect to some of the bizarre cultural things that are playing out tomorrow, because we're gonna be back yeah. doing this a little bit more. So maybe we, we pivot from that and stick with some of these like Title IX situations, which I oh, wonder yeah, yeah, yeah. like, what, what your experience with that is so, like. It,
0: it's it, people eyes over, glaze over to a degree when you start talking about Title IX. But the thing that I was like really trying to explain in my first book, Unlearning Liberty. Is how much Title IX has affected free speech on campus. Now, of course, there are these due process cases, because FIRE, you know, we expanded nationally when we became the foundation for individual rights and, and expression on June 6th of last year, so we now do free speech nationally. We keep our due process practice, though, on campus because we think it's so important, but it's also inextricably linked to free speech issues, too. Uh, there, there's a wonderful book by um, uh, Laura Kipnis called Unwanted, uh, it's Un- Unwanted Advances, it's a
2: phenomenal book, which yeah.
0: blows the whistle on something I've seen yeah. for 22 years. There's an entire secret industry of this stuff. Professors call us all the time saying, I've been charged with what? I don't know yet, they won't tell me. I'm in trouble, I have a hearing, I'm told I can't tell anybody about the hearing, I can't have a lawyer in the hearing, I can't know who's accusing me in the hearing. And and this is one of the reasons why when people claim this stuff isn't happening, I'm like, the the public cases are just a tiny portion of what's going on. And there's an acknowledged, I mean, I I think Harvard has something like 58 Title IX enforcers there, to just give you a sense of like how big this actual industry is. Now, how does it relate to freedom of speech? Um, and we've been fighting this somewhat successfully, sometimes not, the Department of Education keeps coming out of, 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 on with um, regulations that basically say, um, they came out with one in 2013, which they called the blueprint, which said harassment, which, which is severe and pervasive discrimination directed at an individual on the basis of a, a protected category, they, they boiled it down to simply unwelcome speech. Um, it, it, and they added sexual nature, but e- because it was coming out, of the, um, uh, th- coming out of the Department of Education, it's immediately applied to 18 different categories. In Oregon, it, it, it means unwelcome speech on the basis of political belief. This is insanely unconstitutional and incredibly hard to challenge because it's coming out of, of, of a regulatory agency. Um, so you have to keep fighting the reforms of the Title IX because it does affect you know, students in the real world. They get, no, uh, they get very little due process in a lot of these cases. Um, and, and it's funny because like, when, I, when I think about like, if, it, it, I, I, it was really well summed up by the dean of UVA. And I remember him saying, well, there's never a good outcome. There's, there's no good outcome in a, in a Title IX hearing, particularly when it's related to rape. And I was like, what do you mean, no good outcome? And he was completely right, because what he said is, listen, if they're innocent, it's a travesty. If they're guilty, they're not punished nearly hard enough. And I, and I was like, wow, that's actually a pretty good summary. And the idea that you can handle criminal cases, in, in, in some cases, with so little due process and still do right by people... And one of the scandals that, that um, uh, uh, Janet Haley at, at Harvard talks about is how many, many times it is actually minority students who are getting in trouble under the stuff with no due process, tell, being told that they have to keep it secret, careers destroyed with uh, it, it, in a situation that really is, you know, will destroy your life.
2: You, you told a great, great, it's not a great story, but a terrifying story, I think, to Glenn Lowry about a case which I recommend uh, people listen to. But I think for our listeners, I mean, I try to always anticipate their questions. They're usually totally insane. So we love you, but you guys are all crazy. But the one I can imagine here is, rape is a pretty serious crime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why is it being prosecuted, quote unquote, on campus and not in a courtroom? Yeah, no, why are there police not involved? Why are there arrests? And why is the standard of evidence a preponderance of evidence often, yeah. which is like 51% versus something a little more sturdy, I would say.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, it was interesting talking to this actually at people, two people actually at the office of Civil Rights Department of Education, and saying, you know, I made the point that kind of like, well, if they actually are rapists, they're not being punished nearly enough. Yes. And it, the response from a high official who I will not name was nobody should ever go to jail. And I'm kind of like, okay, I think murderers and rapists. Wait, hold on one second.
2: Should. Is, nobody should ever go to jail.
0: That, that, that nobody jail is a bad place, it, and, and it's kind of like yeah. I well, think that's we, the point. We send too many is people it a, to it.
2: Yeah, you know it's a bad place. But rapists and murderers. Yeah yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, that's. I can see it. But they need due process, and they need actually serious investigation. They actually need a chance to know what they're charged with. They need to be able to have a lawyer. They, 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 we went to, a, on a lot of campuses, uh, and uh, they have a single, uh, a single investigator model, basically yeah. one person jury, and execution are deciding whether or not you're guilty. See, this is the,
2: I guess, the part where I sound political and I don't mean to. But I wonder if that political valence here, if this actually matters, the DeSantis stuff happens yeah. and people go insane. I mean, I saw, I, I sent you a piece about this, you know, Kamala Harris is flying to Florida tomorrow mm-hmm. to, to address this uh, curriculum. Um, I've, I've read endless column inches. One would imagine that if you have these kangaroo courts, and that's what they are, I mean, right? I mean, this is not an overstatement, where people are not not only allowed to defend themselves, they're not allowed to question the accuser, know who the accuser is, what the charges is, what the charges are. All this kind of craziness. This has been going on for so fucking long, and yeah. nobody cares. Yeah. But the Desantis stuff happens. Sure. Yeah. Let's 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 take a look at that. And your organization seems to be the only one that's taking a look at both sides of all this stuff it seems like this has been so serious for so long but nobody has paid attention and there might be a political component to that
1: i think there is do you think there is camille
2: I, I would tend to agree with that yeah
1: i think there absolutely is a political component and i think it's this really interesting moment and greg was alluding to this but oftentimes when you ask people just in the real world about these kinds of allegations on campus the person who pops into their head is brock turner so that's the person that everyone has in mind the yeah. stanford swimmer this privilege kid Swimmer, You know, we all know about this this case and, and what happened. And actually, the people who get accused, they really run the gamut. I've had clients who are women. I've had clients who are gay. A lot of poor kids. None of my clients have any money because we're a free legal services clinic. So we're, we're only there for people who cannot afford a lawyer and you're not entitled to one. And they're all people of color and some of them are first generation so it's a it's a new culture. I've had so many clients who are too ashamed to tell their parents and they have very little support and you're absolutely right. Like we're so outraged about so many things. Stop woke or the death penalty. I'm outraged by that, right? But you have these people who are are marching, you know, for these kinds of things and then you you bring up a case like this and they just look at you like they call you a lot of names like you that you're a rape apologist and that you hate women you're they're the feminist antichrist and you know it's really so far removed from the actual experience of litigating these cases and i was saying this to i think both of you this morning but one thing that's been really heartening to me is that as i was saying our clinic does a whole lot of things and this year we had kind of an unprecedented number of people apply and i assumed it was because we just had this exoneration it's the exoneration bump um Spoiler alert, they don't happen every year, so I feel sad for anyone who applied for that reason, but actually, when at the information session, they all wanted to talk about Title IX. And when I came to speak to the interns here, and it was really just like a broad-ranging discussion about all of the topics that we've covered, they wanted to talk about Title IX, and I think this generation actually is pretty outraged and horrified. Now, I realize that's a very small sample, and it's a self-selecting sample for sure, sure. And also, I am, I am optimistic, because I do think that the pendulum is so far, and I do think that the closer in age you are to these students, and you see what's happening, and you could so easily picture it being a brother, or a sister, or a friend, there's there's empathy, there's understanding that these situations are really really complicated. You throw around words like rape. A lot of these cases don't even involve, forgive me for getting like medical, but penetrative sex. Like you have all kinds of ideas about how incredibly serious this is, and this person has to go away forever. Like if you actually knew what the allegation was half the time, it's it's not what you're thinking, and these people aren't who mm-hmm. you're thinking that they are.
0: Well, and I do want to be clear. There's an awful lot of cases where what people are brought up on these secret Title IX hearings is literally just about speech, and sometimes. Academic speech, sometimes, sometimes actually academic points people are making in class, and that's the thing that is so kind of frustrating about this is w- seeing all of these. Can
2: you give an example of what that would be? I, I'm, it's so alien to me. Someone being brought up on a Title IX charge for something they said in class, either as a student or a professor.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I go back to the the, the Laura Kipnis case, and this is something you said in publication, but correct, that's you, right. You, you yeah. know, when she actually talked about, um, uh, she pointed out, she, she wrote an article saying Title IX is being used to stifle speech. Title IX is it, it infantilizing to women. She wrote this in the Chronicle, and then she mentioned a case, just mentioned a case, in which Northwestern was being sued for uh, for t- Title IX charges. Um, she didn't mention the students or anything, mm-hmm. but she got brought up on, for criticizing Title IX and for mentioning th- this case, she got brought up on Title IX charges, couldn't know who she was charged by. It was a 72-day investigation. She couldn't She couldn't know the charges. She couldn't know who, who it was. Um, she couldn't have a lawyer present. And she did something that nobody else does in these cases. And I'm kind of, you know, I have limitations on what I can talk about because in so many cases these, you know, th- these are student uh, professors that got fucked over, and, and I can't say anything about it. But in this case, she went public and she said, no, 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 I criticized Title IX, and now you're bringing up me in Title IX charges this is bullshit. And of course, suddenly the next day, Northwestern discovered they didn't have to charge her at all. And then she wrote a book about it, and then got charged again under the Title IX office.
3: Well, That's we're funny. we're standing between. Uh, these fine young yes.
0: people yes. at
3: dinner, and some of you aren't so young. But um, I, I don't. I want you to eat too. But before we wrap this up, I mean, we have we talked about.
0: I would love to take questions. I do also want them to eat. Malvi, what yeah, do you yeah, think? Yeah,
2: you can yeah. eat. Yeah. How, how hungry are you? <laughs> <laughs>
0: they don't.
3: They don't care. Very quiet. Wow. They fall asleep. Uh,
2: They've been cowed. <laughs> we. are <laughs> oh. gonna.
3: We're gonna wrap soon. Um, but before we wrap, I wanna to. Continue something that you started, Laura, where you talked about some of the things that you're kind of optimistic about, and we were a little more positive in in our thinking about the future. And Greg, you mentioned that you're pretty pessimistic about the the moment in some respects, that this is a a very hostile climate when it comes to free expression. But I saw Oppenheimer last night, and in addition to being a really fabulous three-hour film, I mean, it is. You did
2: did fall asleep at one point. Um, I did, but I I woke up. up, I woke back up, and I was invigorated i mean, start really strong.
3: I was, I was like, you tired. know,
2: I'm not going to spoil it, but they're yeah. going to bomb Japan. But I mean, I, we, we, we <laughs> read a lot. I read yeah, American
3: yeah. Prometheus. I was able to keep sure. up. So yeah. I knew what was going on in the movie.
2: Um, there are a lot of people in Barbie outfits, no joke. Yes. That apparently yeah. saw this like, header the and they're like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Like Let's gritted, go yeah. see yeah. the see one about the bomb. Tiaras yeah. yeah. and sequins
3: all over the place. Pink sequins. But I want to say that this Oppenheimer is a film about... Uh, Oppenheimer and the the discovery of the atom bomb not discovery but the making of the atom bomb but it's also a situation where you have one of these weird secret proceedings someone who is facing profound consequences in a situation where they're not privy to the evidence against them where it seems rather obvious that this is a politically motivated circumstance and you know the McCarthy era in the United States the the, the Red Scare the, the 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 drive to find people who were communists or who were communist adjacent and purge them from polite society, purge them from, from political organizations but also companies as well. We've seen some of this before and does it not make one a little optimistic that a film that is chronicling yeah. just how awful and pernicious this kind of thing is is enjoying the kind of success that this film is? Are there not Reasons to be optimistic right now about I, the the direction the culture might be headed in.
0: I wish I saw more people taking the issue of free speech on campus seriously. Uh, the people in power tend to kind of sneer at it, um, and I haven't seen like an actual motivation towards significant reform. Um, so in, until I see that, you know, then then maybe I'll be optimistic. I don't think the current system. I mean, it's so it's so weird. That one of the wealthiest, most influential institutions in American history, American higher education, particularly elite higher education, which distorts the entire country as pointed out in poison ivy, it, it replicates class privilege it, it basically like it's super evil Walmart, and it <laughs> acts like it hasn't done anything wrong so like it was ri- it was interesting watching like the the respect for higher education has gone down to thirty six percent and watching people just say, oh it's just a, re- a republican plot against it I'm like sorry, are you fucking kidding me? Was was my reaction to it? Like you haven't been paying attention to any of this stuff. So I'm not sure what it will actually take to, to, to have you know, meaningful bureaucratization to actually have some options that, that encourage freedom of speech as opposed to discourage it. But we're not, we're not there yet.
2: I'll say one final thing about the McCarthy. I had a conversation about this recently with somebody and who objected Uh, to the idea, or I objected to the idea that this was a kind of McCarthyite era we're living. There's some things that are different about it, right? But I said, ah, you know, it's, they they were hunting ghosts. They were hunting witches. Milo Yiannopoulos is a racist, sexist, whatever you call him. I don't, I mean, I've interviewed the guy, unfortunately, but that, people say, well, no, but they're real. Whereas, you know, McCarthy is, that was like Salem. That's, Almost completely wrong. The people that were brought—this is about speech, because the point of the reason you hate McCarthyism is the people who were pulled up in front of McCarthy, McCarthy's committee. People who weren't very famous, people like Owen Lattimore, these guys that maybe you've heard about in college. I don't like any of them. Because the the point was is they did have views that I disagree with. Most of them were. These weren't people that just, I happen, I'm a right-wing Republican and they brought me up here. No, they all had associations. But that's not the point. The point is that you should be allowed to have those associations and work in government and have a job in academia and the rest of it. And I, I feel that people say, well, you know, it's not like that because then it was just a, a mania and now we have the people. Did you hear the things they said? Yeah. Did you see the things that they tweeted?
0: I, doesn't one of, one of my sort of like historical crusades is to get people to take actually the circumstances in which uh, mass, uh, mass censorship incidents happen. So like the first thing was alien sedition, which is 1798. Um, we were afraid that the country was going to be destroyed in the cradle by ending up in a war with France. You'd be freaked out too. Um, is the thing that I want people to understand. Like It was a national security crisis. Mm -hmm. They didn't believe the country would survive. And it it doesn't justify the censorship, but I want people to understand the context. You take the 1950s. Americans gave super Hitler... uh, Americans and British people helped get Stalin the bomb. You'd be freaked out too. And we do this compliment to ourselves now that like, well, they, they were crazy when they did the censorship then, but now we have real problems. And it's like, are you really like it's not a national security crisis um, which is usually when these things take place the law is actually extremely strong and you know the, the estimate of like how many professors were fired usually is about 100. Um, we, we think it's probably closer to 140, 150 from our own research. And now we're dealing with a situation where, where there's nothing even comparable to, to freak out the entire country, and we're dealing with numbers that are actually bigger than that. So I, I think that it's really important to take the situation seriously in previous areas and also understand a sense of scale. I mean, there were 50 prosecutions under alien sedition. Does that mean it was no big deal? Of course it doesn't. Th- th- those kind of prosecutions scare the hell out of everybody. There, you know, there were 300 people um, on the, the Hollywood Red Scare list. Is that no big deal? Of course it's a big deal. So, but they can somehow see that as serious and not see something that's happening on a equally crazy scale. They just want to dismiss it. It is, it is funny though. When I mentioned like the one third of, 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 of the uh, cancellation attempts that are successful from the right, some people start taking it a little more seriously. And I'm like, wow, so you just, you, you, you just developed some respect for, the, for, for this issue because we um, def, uh, defended, um, what was her name at UNC? Um, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. N- n- Nicole Hannah-Jones. Yeah. Um, so they suddenly start respect. I watched this, you know, the guy from San Francisco suddenly like, oh, no, I respect that. And I'm like, that's great. I lost all respect for you <laughs> because you didn't care about it until yeah. it was someone you agreed with. Yeah.
1: But, I mean, and I really do want to bring it back to all of you in this room because I think it's important to focus on some really, really important positives. So one of them Thank is you, the that's fact right. that there is enough interest that we would be... Ha- holding court in front of all of you, that you would come, that you would spend your summer learning about these issues. The hour that I spent with the interns was amazing on so many levels. The we questions the were so interns. thoughtful and thorough. People are engaging and I also think like yes history moves in zigs and zags but also we do we do progress forward there's a lot of attention that gets paid to what happens in Stanford and Yale and Harvard etc but the truth of the matter is most people are not going to those elite institutions and I can tell you as someone who teaches in a not elite institution where most people are getting educated including getting their law degrees they are rigorous, hard thinkers. Like, are, are some of my students, you know, along the lines of maybe people that we've been talking about who are overly sensitive? Yes. But on the whole, no. They're really there to learn how to, how to litigate. And I say to people who are, like, wringing their hands, oh, you know, what are we going to do And higher education so terrible? I don't know. Maybe go volunteer. Go teach a class. Go be an adjunct. Go propose teaching something about free speech. Go talk to someone that you disagree with. Have some kind of a, a public debate. And, you know, I say this as someone who's been on the losing side much, much more than they've ever been on the winning side. And I will tell you, I mean, this is a, an odd example to end on. I'm doing it for you, Michael, Great. which is that, <clears throat> as some of you know, the, our district attorney was, was recalled, Chase Boudin, and he's a very close friend. We're, we're very closely allied. And I was his surrogate in a number of public fora that it did not go well. Let's just... <laughs> put it that way there's a lot of anger and he was he was recalled and the truth is some of the reforms that that he put in place they they were they were rolled back and and the one reform that i was like deeply invested in i i wanted to keep it because it was this innocence commission and they had exonerated somebody and i realized like okay i was on the losing side of this debate and in fact the person who i went up hard against is now the person who's the elected DA and so of all people who i would like never want to cooperate with. It would be this person who unseated my friend and who I had all of this public sparring with. And yet, like the concept is much more important. And I think the question is like, okay, what are the grounds upon which we can agree? Can we move forward and make some progress together? Can we, as we were talking about today with the interns, like sit in a room and be uncomfortable with an idea that's hard for you and absorb it and respond to it and try as best as you can to collaborate and move forward. And I do believe that nobody would be here in this room tonight if they didn't believe that. And at the final thing I will say about, about these Title IX cases is that I think more and more of them are moving to a restorative justice mediation resolution where they're not adversarial, and people are actually sitting down and communicating with each other. And that to me is also a positive. So on behalf of all of us we thank all of you for being here because really soon we're going to be dead and it's going to be up to what? you so to dead. make things better right.
0: horribly wrong I got like three well, weeks
1: oh my god i'm okay no not now. No, <laughs> right.
2: wow
3: i'm i'm filled with youthful exuberance i'm not <laughs> yeah, going any place yeah. um, I, I do want to <laughs> concur though with that sentiment i am really grateful that so many of you have elected to spend time here um and i want to say you know if there is a through line if there is a a, a core takeaway it's that the campaign to defend and advance certain fundamental ideals like free expression, like the importance, the centrality of this right. It is our most essential right in many, in, in, in the most basic sense. Um, this is a forever war. People have always hated the idea of freedom of speech. Absolutely. Always they continue to hate it today. It kind of falls in and out of fashion. Sometimes the left seems to be the champion of this cause. Sometimes it's the right. We can set those opportunists aside. The people in this room are the vanguard of the forever war to ensure that those rights and freedoms are there for us, for our progeny, and yes, for the legions of people who do not appreciate yet just how important these rights are. So thank you so much to all of you. Thank you to Greg and Fire, and thank you so much to Lara Bazelon for joining us. Uh, Moynihan, you have any parting thoughts before we let these people eat something?
2: No, let them eat. Um, Lara Bazelon, don't judge a brilliant woman by her terrible friends, <laughs> number one. And number two, Camille Foster once said something extemporaneously in the podcast that became a rallying cry for a lot of our people in mm. companies, and in universities who are having a hard time, and they're like, "Everyone here is totally fucking crazy," and they'd write us emails, and Camille, eh, I don't think he wanted to be there that night when we were recording. So he was very succinct and he said, "Be brave, call bullshit." Yes.
1: Yeah. Which yeah. is what somebody that. asked,
2: "What should I do?" Yeah, well, Be brave. Call bullshit. That's Somebody's crazy. bullshitting. Tell them. End of story.
0: Amen. So that's it. Be brave, call bullshit. Thank Great. you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for coming, everybody.. All of new methods.